I want to introduce you to the Black Aces, a special fraternity of African-American pitchers to win 20 games in a major league season. This fraternity was started by my good friend, the legendary Jim Mutcat Grant, who would become the first Black pitcher in the American League to win 20 games. And in his book called The Black Aces, he wanted to recognize that very rare group and to hopefully use them to encourage others to want to follow in their footsteps. I am honored to have joining me three members of the Black Aces. The legendary Dave Stewart, one of the greatest big game pitchers in baseball history, was 1989 World Series Most Valuable Player and won 20 games or more in four different seasons, in 1987, 1988, 1989, and 1990. CeCe Sabathia, who joined the Black Aces in 2010 when he won 21 games and lost only seven, but also won the Cy Young Award in 2007. And David Price, who would join the Black Aces fraternity in 2012 when he went 20 and five and also won the Cy Young Award. Strike him out and get his 12th strikeout. And David Price dominating. Swing and a miss, strike three. It was the fastball, and it's strikeout number 13 for David Price. A brilliant pitching performance from David Price, who makes it back to back complete game wins. The payoff. Swung in and missed. A new career high 12 strikeouts for Sabathia. 1 2 pitch. Struck him out swinging. There it is. He has three strikeouts. He has 3,000. And next up, CC Sabathia, the Hall of Fame. Thank you all for being a part of this. I've moved into the world of CC. CC's been doing this podcast thing for quite some time. And, and I've been a guest on his show a couple of times. And, and now we flipped the script. And, and they've given me, Stu, a podcast to, for me to run my mouth. But I get to ask questions and share some stories as well. And so I, I'm excited to have you three together and so let me start off by saying thank you all for joining me on this episode of Black Diamonds, where we will talk about the Black Aces and, of course, the legacy of great pitchers in the Negro Leagues. And you all represent that legacy. You, David is representing it, and you both represented that legacy when you took the field as African-American pitchers and, and, of course, being a part of a fraternity that our friend, the great Jim Mutcat Grant, thought of called the Black Aces, the only African-American pitchers in Major League Baseball history to win 20 games during a regular season. And it's a select group of individuals. And I'm so proud of all three of you that you are part of that select group. And, and so, Stu, I want to start with you. When did you catch wind of Mutcat's group called the Black Aces and the realization that you had 120 before? Did all of that kind of set in with you? Did you have an idea of how significant that accomplishment was at that time? Bob, I appreciate you starting off with the old man first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Mud uh, had uh, called me. Truth be told, I never really thought about how many black pitchers had uh, won 20 games. Um, I did often wonder how many black pitchers there were in, in Major League history. Um, because when I started out in the minor leagues in 1975, uh, there were only two in our whole system. That was me and uh, Al Downing at the major league level. Um, I remember Rudy May with the Yankees. Uh, Jim Bibby um, was still pitching at that time. And, and uh, J.R. Richard and a, and a few others. 
Um, and so when he told me that there was this uh, unique club of black pitchers that had won 20 games, uh, me if I would like to be a part of it, he told me what the plan was for the group. Um, you know, immediately um, I, I said yes. And um, it, it really got, got me to thinking how huge an honor that is um, to be a part of a fraternity um, that at that time uh, only included uh, eight, uh, 12 at that time uh, when, I, when, I, when I joined. Um, and so it, it was just a huge honor. Um, and it did provoke thought about um, the guys, you know, before me uh, that had won 20. And, um, and um, so needless to say, um, I was the newest group, newest, newest piece of the group. Um, and then we had our first meeting, um, I believe it was at Mud's golf tournament, um, is when we all met, uh, for the first time and, um, just being in the room, I was already in awe of Bob Gibson, um, and had, had an opportunity to meet him on, on a few occasions. And so being in the room with all of the living black aces, uh, at that time, um, was just, it, it was an unbelievable feel. Yeah, no, you know, I was going through the list of those who are members of this proud fraternity called the Black Aces, and you start running through these names, and these are in alphabetical order. Vita Blue, Al Downing, Bob Gibson, Dwight Gooden, Jim Muttcat Grant, Ferguson Jenkins, Sam Jones, the late, great Don Newcomb, your teammate, Stu Mike Norris, J.R. Richard, Dave yourself, the late Earl Wilson, and then more contemporarily, Dontrell Willis, CeCe Sabathia, and David Price. And that's an exceptional group of guys who make up this list. And, and CeCe, the last time you and I were together doing a conversation with the Yankees, you told a great story. Now, you were being presented the Cy Young Award. You had put together this dazzling season, and, and Muttcat Grant was there to present you with the Cy Young Award. And what did he tell you? Still not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Still ain't that enough, because I think I won 19 games that year. And he had been drilling it in my head, you know, since I was 18 years old, that I needed to win 20 games in the big leagues to be a part of this group. And... You know, I just thought, you know, we out on the field. J.R. Richard was there. Mike Norris was there. I thought he was, you know, coming to congratulate me, give me this big, you know, spill and speech. And he was there to tell me that I hadn't accomplished what he had set out for me. So, <laughs> you know, it, like me pitching with with almost with kind of like his spirit in me the whole time, you know, of trying to win these 20 games and, you know, battling the whole time. And, you know, like Dave said, I, I never – I didn't really think about, you know, there wasn't a lot of black pitchers before me because when I was – when I was coming up, it was it was Stu. It was, you know, my dad, I talked about Vita Blue, was a big person that, he, you know, he always wanted me to be like. And it was Dwight Gooden. So in my mind, there was all these black pitchers, but it was probably only a few of them. You know what I'm saying? But to me, for me to be able to emulate these guys, and these guys pitched th throughout my team. So, you know, it was it was huge that, you know, Stu can, can, can remember when, you know, he's pitching in the big leagues and there wasn't that many guys. But to me, as a kid being able to watch him and, and Doc do their things and, you know, have Vita Blue in my mind. And, you know, my grandfather was a big Don Newcomb fan. So, you know, to be able to have these images of these guys, and that's just who I thought I was. Every time I took the ball, if I was out in the yard playing with my homies or even when I was playing in real games, I, you know, I was Dave Stewart. I was, you know, Doc Gooden. I was these guys. <laughs> so it, it, it's great to be a part of that history and, you know, really kind of live up to what my cat sat out for me when I was 18. Yeah, and, and David, you know, you're obviously still playing. And when did it dawn on you that you had moved into this kind of rarefied air, so to speak, uh, as a member of that fraternity of Black pitchers to win 20 games? Uh, I mean, I guess it was, you know, right after... Um Right after I won my 20th game, you know, CC, you know, he hit me up and, 
you know, told me congratulations and told me about the fraternity that I was, you know, now a part of. And that, you know, really, it really took me back. You know, I wasn't uh, aware of it. You know, I guess I had a, didn't really know the lack of African-American pitchers, just, you know, just like CeCe. Whenever I grew up watching baseball, I mean, it was just, there was a lot of African-Americans out there and I never even really thought about that. You know, anytime a book report came around and, in middle school or high school, it was always going to be about the Negro Leagues or Jackie Robinson or Satchel Paige. You know, it was always going to be one of those guys. But whenever I grew up watching the game, you know, there was just so many black people, so many people that looked just like me on TV. And I know that was part of the reason why I fell in love with the game the way that I did. But you know, CC just reached out to me and, and let me know, you know, what I had uh, what I had accomplished and you know the the fraternity that I was a part of, and then you know, looking it up and, and getting more knowledge about it. And that is, you know, something to this day that is very special to me. Yeah. And it's special to us because particularly after the book came out, and, and I remember, you know, rooting for Dontrell. You know, you wanted Dontrell to get that 20. And, and doing the same thing for CC. You know, just really wanting CC to get that notch number 20. And the same thing with David and, and of course, you know, you guys having won awards from the museum, Stu being a, a tremendous contributor to this museum. I, I want to go around the horn and just ask specifically your first impressions of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And David, I'll start with you because I got the chance to present you with the Wilbur Bullet Joe Rogan Award for being the American League Pitcher of the Year as named by the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and your first visit here to the museum. What was that like for you? Whenever you walk in, you know, to to see all the players on the field, you know, that is, to me, that is something that always stands out. You know, to kind of get to see their stature on that field, um, to see Stachel standing on the on the mound, um, that was a very cool feeling um, going into the theater, you know, standing up for the national anthem, you know, all of that stuff. You know, I remember, I remember my first time going through there, you know, just seeing all the different uniforms. I think, uh, I think my favorite part was seeing everybody's nicknames. You know, everybody had <laughs> nicknames and I am i uh, I'm a huge nickname person. You know, I'm really bad at remembering somebody's name but I'm really good at giving somebody a nickname and then never forgetting it. So for me, nicknames is always the way to go. And just to, to see all the different nicknames in there, I think, uh, I think my favorite was probably Pumpsy Green. That's, uh, that's one of my favorite names out there. I really, I really enjoy that one. You know, Leroy Satchel Page is, is still at the top of my list as well. But um, just seeing all the history, hearing all the stories, um, just getting to see little clips and, and newspaper writings. You know, that was, uh, that was very special. Yeah. And, and Cece, I know you've been a mainstay here with ever, whichever club that you were a part of, if they came to Kansas City, you <coughs> always made your way to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But I remember when we invited you and Amber to come out for the Legacy Awards at that time. And... What was that moment like for you, your first trip to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum? That was, that was a lot of fun to be able to, to bring my family. You know, um, I got a chance to travel. Little C came with us. Um, Amber got a chance to see the museum. And to be honest, that was the first time me and Prince Fielder met. That was like the, yes. the beginning of, you know, our friendship. He's like a little brother to me now. And, you know, that first, um, you know, initial meeting that we had at the museum, getting a chance to walk through together and, just really being connected and feeling connected to the museum and, you know, knowing this is the only reason why we're able to live out our dreams is because of, you know, the guys that, that paved the way before us and to be able to have a building and a museum to commemorate that and for us to be able to walk through and, and feel connection, a connection to that um, is something that's super special. But I, I just remember that, that trip being fun for me because I got a chance to bring everybody. Like my mom was there, my cousins came in and, you know, getting a chance to, to celebrate that with, with, with the whole family at the museum was a lot of fun. Yeah. No, it, it was special. And, and, of course, Buck was still with us yep. at that time, the late, great Buck O'Neill, who, I mean, just relished in the fact that people like yourself and, and of course, Stu, who he knew extremely well, 
you know, that meant the world to him to have players here of any skin color, but particularly the African-American players to come back home. And that's what we call it, coming back home. You know, the Negro Leagues Museum for African-American and Hispanic players, this is your Mecca. You know, these are your roots. And, and so, Stu, the first time that you stepped foot in this museum, what was it like for you? Oh, it was it was a lot of things. Um, one, uh, the first time I stepped through there, Buck was actually there and had an opportunity to sit and listen at him tell stories about his days uh, with uh, in the Negro Leagues. And I believe he called Satchel Page Salad. <laughs> so to listen at, you know, the stories about he and Satchel and, and, you know, playing at that time. But the truth is, Bob, walking through the museum and listening to you describe different pieces of the museum and different exhibits in the museum. And, and if you close your eyes and just listen to you talk, you can see it and you can feel what took place in those times. And um, for me, that, that, that's what I remember most about walking through the museum is just closing my eyes and listening listening to you, but there are certain things that you do because you're around bucks so much <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. when you, when you say certain things, I can hear buck. Yeah. I, I can hear him. Uh, you know, buck used to always go, uh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, you, <laughs> <laughs> and you got that same characteristic. And so, you know, the exhibits are, are, are absolutely amazing exhibits. And, and David, you spoke about being outside that fence and, and watching all of the, the different statues on the diamond. Um, but for me, the most exciting uh, piece of the museum and the thing that I remember most about the museum and when I think about the museum is Bob Kendrick walking us through the museum, thinking about the exhibits and the times of the Negro Leagues and telling Satchel Page and Buck O'Neill's stories. Uh, that's what I remember most. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, and it, guys, it never gets old for me. It really doesn't. And I feel like I am carrying the legacy of Buck O'Neill with me because I don't want these stories to ever die. And, and hopefully whoever comes in behind me will keep these stories alive as well. You know, as we were celebrating, and I'm thrilled that Major League Baseball has acknowledged the Negro Leagues as Major League and going to bring forth the statistical data. And that's all fine and well. But I want people to understand that the statistics are contextual in my eyes. It creates context. It creates that for those who need to have the numbers to verify how good these guys were. But it can never paint an accurate picture of what the Negro Leagues really were. And and these stories, as I tell people all the time, For Major League Baseball fans, Babe Ruth was Paul Bunyan. And for Negro League fans, Josh Gibson was our John Henry. And I want John Henry to live forever. You know, he was a hammering man with that big bat that he swung, 40 on 41 inches. You know, and I don't want us to ever lose that. And and CeCe, I know what satchel means to you because you you created the ultimate tribute to Satchel Page. Would you share what you did as your own personal remembrance and ode to the legendary Satchel Page? Oh, yeah. So I got a big tattoo um, on my leg, <laughs> a picture of <laughs> a portrait of, of Satchel. Um, but, but, you know, just like, like, um, like Stu was saying, hearing those, those very first stories of Satchel walking through you know, the museum and hearing how he used to warm up with the gum wrapper. Like once, once I heard those stories and like all those different things of how he warmed up and, you know, just going back and listening and, and, you know, just understanding how great of an athlete he was. Like it just made me fall in love with him and, and then watching all the pictures and seeing all the pictures and, you know, he had his own plane and his limos and he had his name on everything. It just seemed like a guy that was a lot of fun to be around. And obviously, you know, one of the greatest talents to, to, to ever play the game, but 
just so much fun to be around off the field. Um, you know, just just made me fall in love with him immediately and, and his character and, you know, everything about him and, and getting a chance to, you know, uh, be with, with Bob Feller and hear stories about Satchel Paige mm-hmm. because they played they play together, played against each other in those barnstorming games in, in the offseason. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I had to get the tattoo um, <laughs> you know, after after uh, hearing all these stories and stuff. So, he, you know, it's just one of those uh, one, definitely my favorite player from 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 that era for the Negro Leagues for sure. Well, the year was 1946 and Satchel and Bob Feller hook up in an epic barnstorming tour. They're going East Coast to West Coast. This is right after the World Series because Commissioner Landis had basically outlawed these exhibition games happening while the season was still going on because they were outdrawing the World Series. And he thought that was an embarrassment. But I can tell you now, nobody wanted to stop these games because they were making so much money. So 1946, Feller has his plane Satchel has his plane, and they hook up in this barnstorming tour. And Buck O'Neill was a member of the Satchel Page All-Stars that year. And he says, for 17 days of work in 1946, that each of them could earn $7,000 apiece. He says he was making so much money that his wife thought he was stealing. (laughs) 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 <laughs> but it is widely believed that Satchel and Fella, who were the promoters, and I can tell you now, there were never two greater self-promoters in this sports history than <laughs> Satchel and Bob Fella. Now, you might add Charlie Finley into the mix, too. Uh, but these guys knew how to sell it. Now, it is widely believed that each of them could have made as much as $100,000 in 1946. Uh-huh. And, and, and what CC alluded to, in 1943, J.L. Wilkinson buys an airplane so that he could hire Satchel out to go play for other teams and then get him back to join his Kansas City Monarchs. I mean, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Leroy Satchel Page. And, and for CC and David both, you know, you guys are both tall individuals. David physically you're almost identical to Satchel, but there was a great left-handed pitcher in the Negro Leagues named Slim Jones. And everybody thought that Slim Jones was going to be the next Leroy Satchel Page. Slim Jones, 20 years old. He reminds me a little bit of Doc Gooden, but he's left-handed at this time. He's a left-hander. And, and Slim had one of the most amazing seasons in Negro Leagues history. Well, They hook up Satchel and Slim Jones in an epic showdown in all places, Yankee Stadium. Uh All park is full to see these two legendary players. Slim Jones was about 6'6", long and lanky. Satchel, about 6'5", 6'6", long and lanky. And, And Slim Jones was pitching for the Philadelphia Stars at that time. And, and Satchel is pitching for the Pittsburgh Crawfords, 1934. <clears throat> and, and they hook up in what many say is the greatest game to happen in Yankee Stadium. And it ended in a 1-1 tie. Slim okay. Jones struck out nine and gave up three hits. Page struck out 12, gave up six hits. And then in the rematch, they got 30,000 in Yankee Stadium. And the old man said, okay, enough of this. Let me set the record straight. Page beat Slim Jones three to one, struck out 18, gave up two hits <laughs> in that game and, and two of the greatest pitching duels ever. But man, I'm telling you, you know, you hear all the stories about Satchel. Satchel was the truth. He was absolutely the truth. But that game in Yankee Stadium is still believed to be one of the greatest. Day. You talk about playoff intensity. You know how everybody rise up to the level because what Buck always talked about Satchel was Satchel, when, whenever Satchel was pitching for the Monarchs, the Monarchs were always good. But when Satchel was on the mound, they were great. But, Stu, what they did was they brought out the greatness in the competition because oh. everybody wanted to beat Satchel. Yeah, they wanted to beat Satchel. 
And, and so everybody rose, you know, their level rose along with the competition. And that game was filled with like playoff intensity. So the guys behind you, they're trying to make all the plays because, you know, no, everybody wants this because Slim Jones before the game had told his teammates, y'all get me two. If you get me two, I'm going to win this game. <laughs> Unfortunately for Slim, they only got him one. And that game ended in a tie because of darkness in 12 innings. And, and so it, it was just one of those great showdowns. But one of the things that we wanted to do in this episode, since we're talking about the Black Aces, and one of the things that Mutcat included, Stu, in the chapter of the book, was those Negro League players who didn't get an opportunity. Who would have conceivably been... 20-game winners had they gotten the opportunity. And, and so when I see Stu, I think of Bullet Joe Rogan. Wilbur Bullet Joe Rogan. Bullet Joe Rogan, I'm so glad that people are talking so glowingly about Shohei Atani, and rightfully so, because we had not seen this for years. Now, again, everybody said we ain't seen it since Ruth. And I say contraire. We saw it a lot in the Negro Leagues because two-way players were common in the Negro Leagues simply because their roster sizes weren't as large. So you had to have versatility in that lineup. And fellas, Bullet Joe Rogan was a star pitcher for the Kansas City Monarchs. Right-hander, as Buck would say, a heavy fastball. Hmm. You know, he threw a screwball, threw a little bit of everything with great control. But when he wasn't pitching, he hit cleanup and played the outfield for the Monarchs. Bullet Joe Rogan led the Negro Leagues in stolen bases when he was 38 years old and lifetime batting average over 300. And, and there are some historians that make the argument that Bullet Joe Rogan might be the greatest baseball player of all time. So when we talk about that two-way aspect, Bullet Joe Rogan was doing the same thing. But so was Leon Day, the great Leon Day who when he came back from World War II in 1946, David, his first game after coming back to rejoin the Newark Eagles, throws a no-hitter in his first game back from World War II. <clears throat> Needless to say, he was happy to be back on U.S. <laughs> from World War II. But when I hear someone, <laughs> the magnitude of my dear friend, the late, great Monty Irv says that Leon Day was Bob Gibson before we ever knew who Bob Gibson was and that Leon Day would have rivaled or quite possibly been better than Bob Gibson. That is the ultimate compliment. But then I think about guys who don't get as much attention. And, and, and I want to share these numbers with you before I introduce who this player is. He was a lefty as well, David. And he holds the distinction of having thrown three consecutive no-hitters. He has over 400 verifiable wins, two 30 strikeout games, 11 games with more than 25 strikeouts, and 30 with more than 20 strikeouts. And he's not a household name but he should be. This player is named John Wesley Donaldson. Great left-handed player uh, in the early era of black baseball. You know, many say that Satchel got his style from Donaldson, you know, because Donaldson too was a hired hand. J.L. Wilkinson would also hire Donaldson out to go pitch. And so Donaldson pitched almost everywhere in his career, but he doesn't start until 1913. So he's so early. And so by the time the Negro Leagues start, he's at, you know, nearly end of his career. And then Donaldson would go on to become a groundbreaking scout. Major League Baseball's first black scout is John Donaldson with the Chicago White Sox. But Donaldson was absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. You know, and, and as I said, these are verifiable numbers. Over 5,000 strikeouts in his career that the researchers have gone back now and verified that. So when you hear that name, and, and, and Stu, I'll start with you. What do you think when you hear those kinds of numbers that, again, this is not hyperbole. 
It has been verified. Man, when I hear those kind of numbers. (laughs) 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 You got to pour me a drink, man. Make me believe that. Oh, man. Those are crazy numbers. 30, strikeout, 30 strikeouts in a game? 30 man. times. <laughs> Thank um, you. Thank um, you, um, bro. 11 times with 25 strikeouts. <laughs> 5,000 for a career? For a career. And these are verified thanks to the Donaldson Network, who have gone back for years now to research John Ooh. Donaldson and to dig and find box scores so that they could pull this information together. And John Donaldson supposedly should absolutely he, be in the Hall of Fame. He, he invented the cutter too, right? Yes, he invented what they he called invented the cutter. He invented the cutter, yeah. Yeah, yeah Donaldson was nasty, man. And, and yeah. we, they found some rare video of him. And, and you can see his delivery on the mound. And, and you could tell he had the goods as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's who Satchel wanted to emulate. Satchel wanted to be like John Donaldson. But yeah, as we too. know... Me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as we know, every hero has a hero. You know? And, and, and for you guys, Stu, who did you want to emulate when you oh, got started? Bob Gibson, without a doubt, was the guy. Um, that, was, that was the guy. Um, my dad, there were two, two people. It was Willie Mays or Bob Gibson. There was there was nothing else. If you're gonna pitch, it's Bob Gibson. If you're gonna be a player, it's Willie Mays. Those were two guys. Mm-hmm. What about you, CC? My two were uh, Vita Blue and Dave Stewart. <laughs> I grew up in the Bay. They both played for the A's. My dad was a huge, huge Vita Blue fan. Um, I unfortunately never got a chance to see him pitch, but by the time I was old enough to understand baseball, Stu was on the mound. So. It was a perfect, perfect for me to be able to look at, you know, he's, this is the ace of the best team in the big leagues and he's in my backyard. So um, it was just a perfect time for me to grow up in, in loving baseball. Yeah, David, was there anybody in particular that you wanted to emulate as a kid growing into this game? Um, I mean, Satchel was, was huge for me. I loved, I loved his windup. You know, I remember in, <laughs> in Little League ball, you know, doing that on the mound and getting that windmill going and, and doing all that stuff. But, I mean, by the by the time I got to high school and got a little bit older, you know, it was uh, – for me, it was CeCe. You know, he was always a guy that I enjoyed watching, you know, would um, make sure that I was at home whenever CeCe was pitching. You know, seeing him, you know, being left-handed as well, you know, that just um, – that all added to it. But I loved his fire, loved his demeanor, and, you know, always, always heard good things about him as a teammate. So that was uh, something I strive to be. Yeah. Yeah, no, you know, and, and again, as we talk about the legacy of great black pitchers, another pitcher that comes to mind, again, Ray Brown. Ray Brown, who they call the Sunday pitcher. You know, Sunday, <laughs> that means you the ace. If you pitching on Sunday, yeah, you the guy. And, and, and Brown was known for drawing huge crowds. You know, every time he took the hill, everybody came out to see Ray Brown pitch. And, and he was part of that great homestead graze dynasty that won eight consecutive pennants. In 1944, he threw a one-hit shutout in the 1944 Negro League World Series. You know, known for his great curveball. He was just dominant. And and then we think about guys like Martin DeHigo, who was nicknamed El Maestro, the master, because he could do it all. See, now DeHigo played all nine positions played all nine positions, and played all nine of them well. He hailed from Cuba. And so here at the museum, he's the batter at the museum. And DeHigo holds the distinction of being the only baseball player to be enshrined into five different countries' baseball halls of fame. So he's in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. But one year in the Mexican League, DeHigo wins the pitching title. He goes 19-2 and with an 0.90 ERA. The sucker hits 387 that same season (laughs) and won the batting title. (laughs) So, you know, when we're talking about great two-way players, it gives me that opportunity 
to bring these names to light. These are names that a lot of people have not heard about, but they should have. So thank you, Shohei Atani, for giving us this opportunity to talk about, you know, these great two-way players of the Negro Leagues. Hilton Smith, the great Hilton Smith. Hilton Smith, and I always say had the misfortune because that's really not the right term. He was on the same team with Satchel. And CC, when Satchel walked in the room, you knew he was in the room. The room was going to light up. Hilton Smith was the polar opposite. David, he was quiet, unassuming, very workmanlike. Hilton Smith had gone to Prairie View A&M College. And Hilton Smith got cut from the Prairie View A&M team. And Hilton Smith is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So I tell people the coach that cut Hilton Smith is, is very equivalent to the coach, the high school coach that cut Michael Jordan. Because <laughs> 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 and so Hilton Smith, fellas, did something that I don't think we will ever see done again in, the, in this game. Hilton Smith won 20 games or more 12 consecutive years. Buck O'Neill believed the greatest curveball that he ever saw. And Monty Irvins would say of Hilton Smith that you could know that his curveball was coming, but the break on it was so sharp that you still couldn't hit it. And Hilton had the distinction of being called Satchel Shadow because he was playing with Satchel. And like I said, when Satchel walked in the room, everybody knew he was in the room. Hilton Smith, Satchel would pitch his three innings because Satchel was pitching almost, you know, two or three innings almost every single day. Satchel would pitch the three innings, and then Hilton Smith would come in and pitch the last six. And everybody would say, if you were going to get anything, you better get it off of Satchel because you're not going to touch Hilton Smith. But same thing, when he wasn't pitching, he's playing the outfield and a lifetime batting average of over 300. You know, these are the kinds of players that we're talking about. And and, and one of my favorites, Smokey Joe Williams. Smokey Joe. You know, number one, a great nickname for a pitcher, too. Smokey (laughs) Joe David, also nasty, left-handed. And Smokey Joe, and Stu, you'll love this, struck out 27 Kansas City Monarchs in a 12-inning game, 27. But here's the caveat. He was 44 years old. (laughs) (laughs) 44 years old. 44 years old, man. And and when Smokey Joe was with, you know, most notably the Homestead Grays, the Homestead Grays were... At their best. I mean, they had a they had a rotation that was dominant. You know, we saw that throughout the history of the Negro Leagues. You know, I often talk about the 1942 Kansas City Monarchs, one of the greatest pitching staffs in baseball history. So, you know, there are so many great pitchers in the Negro Leagues. And quite frankly, they never got the opportunity because the pitching, catching, shortstop position were seen as those cerebral positions. And there was this underlying belief that we weren't smart enough to play those positions. So you didn't see that many black pitchers get the opportunity. You think about this, guys. Satchel comes over to Cleveland and he's either 42 or 52. There was not another owner that would have taken Satchel except for Bill Vec. Bill Veck is the only guy that would have ever given Satchel an opportunity. It would have been so easy for the other owners to say, no, nah, he's too old. No, we're going to do their sideshow. We're making a sideshow, a mockery of this thing. And to be honest, I don't know if Bill Veck knew that the old man still had some gas in the tank. But David, the old man still had some gas in the tank. And, and so when Satchel joins Cleveland Stew, he didn't get there until July of 1948, joins the Indians on July 7th, which we believe is his birthday. Now, we believe, because we don't really know, but we believe that he was born July 7th, 1906. But quite frankly, Satchel was likely born into the early to mid-1890s in Mobile, Alabama. 
And he comes out of the bullpen when he first joins the tribe. And when he gets in for his first start against the Washington Senators, they're in Griffith Stadium in D.C. And this was one of the rare times that the old man didn't have his control. You know, C.C. already mentioned the fact that he would use a stick of foil chewing gum wrapper to warm up with, to throw to the catcher. So he didn't use home plate. He would actually use a stick of foil chewing gum wrapper. And wherever the catcher set that chewing gum wrapper down on top of home plate, Satchel would throw to the chewing gum wrapper. And as Satchel would say, he'd work both corners of that chewing gum wrapper. <laughs> so, <laughs> the old man, he said that his leg was bothering him. So he didn't have his legs underneath him. And he was uncharacteristically wild that day early on. And he walked like three, four guys. And then he got his legs underneath him. They win that game five to three. Then they move over for his next start. They moved to Chicago to play the White Sox. They at Comiskey Park. Now, they got 55,000 people in the ballpark. They had to turn away another 12,000 who couldn't get in. You know, they wanted to get in to see the old man pitch. He shuts out the White Sox five to nothing. They go back over to Cleveland. And, Stu, you might remember they had Municipal Stadium in Cleveland. It was a mm-hmm. huge ballpark. And CC, they got 93,000 plus in the ballpark to see the old man's debut, starting debut with Cleveland. And the White Sox are back in town, and he shuts out the White Sox again, one to nothing, with Larry Doby driving in the winning run. His first three starts accounted for over 200,000 people who came out to watch the old man but the old man still had some gas left in the tank. Cleveland would win the pennant. They won the pennant by one game and then would go on to win the 1948 World Series. And and my Cleveland Indian fans get tired of hearing me say this. That was the last time Cleveland won the World Series. Believe me, believe me. Indians, you know. You play the organization, you know the last time they won. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with Satchel and Larry Doby. And to give you an indication, and David, we talk about great control. Now, Satchel, this is 19, oh, he's 50 years old. So this would have to be 1960, he's 62. And Bill Vec now had ownership in the Miami Marlins. Triple A T, minor league triple A T. He brings the old man back. You know, a drawing card, but the old man pitched tremendously at the triple A level. Well, this is one of the great stories. I heard this story first from Vin Scully, and then I heard it verified by Whitey Herzog. And, and so they are in Rochester, New York. And Whitey Herzog was a young outfielder for that Miami Marlin team. And so David A. in Rochester, and the Rochester team had a knot hole in the outfield wall. And they had a promotion. If any batter could hit a ball on the fly through the knot hole, you could win $10,000. Well, it was virtually impossible. But Herzog says he's out in the outfield that day jogging, and he took some baseballs with him because he wanted to see if the ball would actually fit in the knot hole. Well, there was just enough circumference to get that ball through the hole. He goes and gets Satchel. He said, Satchel, you always bragging about how great your control was and is. I bet you a bottle of old granddad bourbon that you can't throw that baseball through that knot hole. Now, Satchel had a nickname for everybody. His nickname for Herzog was Wild Child. He says, Wild Child, will the ball fit? Well, Herzog shows him there's just enough circumference to get that ball through the hole. He says, wow, child, I'll take that bet. And so Herzog, Stu, steps off 60 feet, six inches, puts down the pitching rubber. He's going to give the old man three tries to throw that ball in the knot hole. Satchel, y'all, takes the baseball like a hunter is looking through the telescope of his rifle. And he measures. 
And the first pitch, CC, goes in the hole, but spins back out. Herzog says he is in freaking disbelief. (laughs) (laughs) He says the next pitch goes right through the hole. Right through the hole. He says, Satchel looks down, says, wild child, I'll take that. Picked up the bottle of bourbon and, and sauntered right on back into the sunset. <laughs> Major League Baseball on Sirius XM is a fan's field of dreams. I can hear every game. From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? They're on the Sirius XM app. They built it knowing you would come. Ray. There's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. This summer, experience Negro Leagues 101, a celebration of the 101st anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. For more information, plus event schedules, video exhibits, and safety guidelines, visit nlbm.com and follow the museum on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC and follow Bob at NLBMPrez. You know, as I chat with you guys about your legacy, your place, and hopefully the future of this game as it relates to not only Black players, but Black pitchers in particular, you know, what what does that make you think about? And what are your hopes for the future? Because we want those to know about what you all have accomplished. And David is still accomplishing it as he's still playing the game. But your place in this game and what does that mean as we now look at future generations in hopes that they too will get this opportunity to do what each of you have done successfully. Stu, what do you think about the future of black players, uh, of black ball players in general, but particularly black pitchers. You know, I was actually just sitting here while we were having, while we're having this conversation. And, you know, I, I never had the opportunity to talk to Bob Gibson to find out who he wanted to be like as a pitcher. Um, but I, I, I do know that, you know, Bob Gibson was, was my guy. And then CC said that Biden and I were his guy. And David Price has said that CC was his guy. And uh, actually, Don Trail has mentioned that I was his guy. And so for me, especially when it comes to black pitching, um, you know, I'm hoping that there is somebody, and I know there is somebody out there that is going to say that David Price was his guy. And so this lineage or link this chain um I, I'm, I'm hoping that that chain will never be broken i'm hoping that that in in an indirect way that i live 50 years from now because of the fact that cc david david and somebody and somebody to that guy they will they will remember you know, what I was able to do in this game and what I was able to accomplish. And all of us will be remembered because, as David said, what what brought him to the game of baseball was because he was able to see people who looked like him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so somehow baseball has to figure out a way to make sure that we stay alive in this game, which I'm sure that they will do. Our numbers aren't as great as they should be in this game. But just having the conversation today and, and, and it created thought for me of, of Bob Gibson and maybe Bob Gibson was, was sad Sam Jones or, or he could have been Don Newcomb or he could have been Satchel Page. I don't know who his guy was, but we all have somebody that linked us to mm-hmm. what we did and how we did it. More important, how we did it, because how we did it is what had an effect on it and what will have an effect on the next person. That, that's, what, that's what makes them want to pitch. Um, Bob Gibson, how he did it, made me want to pitch. Um, and, and that's what, what my immediate thought is um, in this game is that 
you know, I, I just hope the chain is never broken and that we can continue for many, many years past this time. And, and I know that we've got, we've got other guys out there. We don't have other 20 game winners out there. You know, David is our last right now. And with the way the game is, he may be our last, the way pitching is. Um, but, um, you know, somebody's going to look back and say, you know, that this was my guy and this is why I do what I did. And it all links back to the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. CC, what about you? No, I mean, I think Stu just summed it up amazingly right there. And I think, <laughs> I think that's, that's why Mudcat made the book. You know what I mean? It's, it's for us to, to all be connected and for us to keep this going and keep this alive. I mean, you know, we're just talking about great two-way players and it got me thinking about some of the high school kids that are coming. It's a kid named RJ Austin in, in, in Atlanta right now that can do both really, really good. I'm excited <laughs> to see him. It's a kid in Dallas named Trenton, Trenton Shaw that can pitch and hit really, really good. So, like, just keeping that alive, I feel like now I'm the mudcap where I'm going and I'm trying to find the, the next guy. I'm looking <laughs> at Kumar Rocker. I'm on Strowman's Instagram. I'm texting Jaden Hill, Christian Little, all these different guys that, you know, hey, like, look, look at this group of guys that we have here. Like, come join us. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that was that was Mudcat. I think that's why he made the book is for us to always be connected and remember why we started playing this game and to be an inspiration to somebody else coming behind us. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you mentioned Kumar because, David, I think Coach Corbin is one of the most significant coaches in our sport. Because he gets it. He absolutely gets it. And, and the Vanderbilt program gets it. Because they have found ways, maybe where others have said they couldn't figure out a way to bring in black players and create opportunities for black players. You having gone through that program with Coach. And so what does that mean to you as well? Uh, I mean, like you said, Coach Corbin, he... He gets it. And from the moment he came over to my house, so my parents' house, and talked to us about the one thing that he promised my parents was he was going to return them a young man that was more mature. And that was something that he always talked about. You know, whether or not you get better on the baseball field, you will get better at life. And he just puts that responsibility on all his players' shoulders just to, uh, to come in, be respectful, Get your job done. Um, special man, and he, he goes about it the right way. Yeah, I've been so thrilled to form a relationship with him. And two years ago, he brought the Vanderbilt baseball team to the museum. This was important for him and his players to fully immerse themselves in this experience because he wanted all of his players, not just his black players, but he wanted all of his players to understand and I think appreciate the heritage of our game. And, and Stu, you played at a time when there clearly were a lot more black players playing in our game. And, and I just, I'm one that subscribes to the belief that you don't really know what you missed and how good it was until you've actually seen it. You know, and so the game is great, and I take nothing away from our game today. But when you had that litany of great black stars, and, and I look at it, guys, from the standpoint of what happens after Jackie Robinson. When Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in 1947, and then this pipeline of tremendous black talent and Hispanic, Afro-Latino talent, would now move into the major leagues. What happens? Major League Baseball gets its... I, it gets the greatest influx of talent in any one time period than in the history of this game. It absolutely changed the way this game was played. It changed the pace of this game. Because I always go back to something that Bob Gibson says. He, you know, he talked about how great the National League was because it was so different. The National League was so more aggressive, far more aggressive signing black talent than the American League was. And he talked about the fact that the, the black players thought that the American League was a place where old ball players went to die, you know, because <laughs> the pace of the game was just so different. And, and so you saw a lot of that talent. When you talk about the 70s and 80s, there was exceptional black talent on the field. 
And obviously, we don't see that today nearly as much. And so when you compare and contrast what it was like then and then having been a GM and seeing the talent level today, and again, it's great talent. There are a lot of great guys who can play this game. But I still believe that the speed of the 70s and 80s was at a whole different level. Maury Wills, Omar Moreno, Jackie Robinson. I mean, you can, Davey Lopes, we can name a thousand guys. Ricky Henderson that stole bases and stealing bases was a part of the game. Um, that is now almost non-existent. You're never going to see anybody break Ricky Henderson's record. Um, that That's going to be gone. Um, bunning um, and hit and runs, um, all that, all those those pieces are gone. And so, and then the biggest part is, um, and and I can remember when I went to Atlanta, Georgia in 19, 1980, um, and, and it was me and Dusty and Davey and, and Lee Lacey and Al Downing. And, man, it was just, we were all standing in center field and, you know, in a joking way, the guy, some of the white guys on the team would say, man, it's a big shadow in center field. You know, because it was just so many, there was just so many black players. And, and that, in my opinion, is the, the biggest difference in the game. And, you know, Latin players are, are obviously great players and have had tremendous impact on the game. But um, I believe because there are so, so few black players in the game that, in my opinion, the, the talent level of the game is a great, it's, it, it is a great level. And still only a few people can play this game. But I think when you've got more black players in the game, that the talent level is even that much more better um, because of just the dynamics. Most, most black players are athletic. And as you said, they can play. They can play any position on the field. They can pitch. They can hit. They can do whatever is, is necessary to win baseball games. And I think that that dynamic um, also has changed the game. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I still love baseball. I still love watching it. Um, but it is a very, very different game from the game that I first watched. I remember my first game was 1962 Pittsburgh Pirates against the San Francisco Giants at Candlestick Park, uh, Willie Mays versus Roberto Clemente. Wow. And, and, um, I remember that game. It was bat day on a Saturday and waiting outside the stadium for three hours to get an autograph from Willie Mays. Um, on that San Francisco Giant team, you have Willie Mays, Jim Ray Hart, Matty Jesus, and Felipe Lou, Orlando Cepeda. Um, those were the guys that played on that team. You know, Juan Marinchel was was on was on the, was on the mound. So, you know, that's a great combination. And most of those guys were on the field. I mean, they weren't playing, sitting on the bench. They were on the field. And if you go back to the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I don't mean to be long-winded about it, just think about the Pittsburgh Pirates when you had Stargell, Stinnett, uh, Mad Dog at third, you had Parker, Lacey, you had Don Robinson. I mean, Bibby on the mound. I mean, we are family. You know, yeah. you had a yeah. – that was – Pretty much an all-black team when you yeah, put it Yeah, matter of fact, they're the first to field an all-black team in Major League yeah. Baseball history so, to start an all-black lineup. CC, last time you and I were together doing a, an event for the Yankees, you mentioned something about your Milwaukee Brewers experience and, and being around a number of black players. Could you relate that story, please? Oh, yeah. So I got traded to Milwaukee in 2008 um, that summer uh, from Cleveland. And, you know, it was... The, the most time that I ever, that was the most black players that I ever played with on one team. It was myself, Prince Fielder, um, Ricky Weeks. We had Ray Durham, uh, Billy Hall, Mike Cameron. And it was just so much fun. I mean, everybody talked about, you know, how that team, you know, that organization that had made the playoffs in 26 years and, you know, things that we were doing that summer, you know, were special. But it was because we were all so close and we were having so much fun and it was a close-knit group. Close -knit group. We didn't want the summer to end, you know what I mean? So we're going out playing baseball every day, you know, enjoying enjoying being with each other and each other's company and being able to tell stories loud in the clubhouse and do different things that, you know, you normally wouldn't be able to do if you didn't have these many teammates. So, 
Yeah, I mean, that was the most fun I've ever had in the big leagues was that two and a half, three months that I was in Milwaukee where, you know, all of us were together. And, you know, like I said, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, me and Prince are, you know, it's like my little brother. So we've been lifelong friends. You know, that whole team, that whole group have been, we've been really close ever since uh, 2008. Yeah, no, that that was a special time. And, and David, you know, as you're kind of out of the group, you know, you're carrying the legacy forward now and still playing and has had a tremendous career what do you think about when you look at the future of black pitchers and black players in general, but specifically those who kind of do your craft? And what do you see as the future? Um, I mean, I hope it gets back to, uh, to the way that it was. And you know, I think uh, with these different college programs really excelling you know the way that they are especially like Vanderbilt and having you know black players and black pitchers come out of that program be successful you know like I said before you know I fell in love with baseball because I could turn on a game and and see people that look just like me Mm -hmm. growing up and watching um all those those Braves teams and that Braves dominance and you know seeing Dave Justice and Fred McGriff and, and Terry Pendleton and Andrew Jones and just all those all those guys out there that looked just like me and, and smiled the way that I smiled and had fun the way that I had fun out there on that baseball field was, um, was everything. So, um, you know, I hope the, I hope the future, you know, it's, I hope they get back into it, you know, really, because, yeah. you know, we have some right now, you know, in the, in the big leagues, you know, Tristan McKenzie and Stroman and um, Hunter Tyson Ross and Joe Ross. Yep. Hunter Green. You know, they, uh, we got some good stuff out there. So yeah. um, hopefully they can continue to, uh, to be successful. And, you know, that next generation will see these guys and it'll get back up to where it needs to be. Yeah. No, I share that same belief. And, I, 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 and maybe that's the buckle Neil stew in me, uh, the eternal optimist, the consummate glass half full kind of guy that believes that we have an opportunity because we still have people like yourselves who are still part of this game and still helping promote this game and the opportunities that can come along with this game. You know, guys, it's so exciting for me to have this opportunity to talk with you guys about the legacy of Black pitchers in particular. The future of black players um, and hopefully the future of great black pitchers who will also be part of the legacy that is the Negro Leagues. You know, you guys represent that legacy incredibly well. And I can tell you this, all of us at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum are tremendously proud of how you all performed and the work that you all are still doing, giving back to this game and giving hope to a future generation that they can too follow in your footsteps. I would be remiss if I did not send a shout out to my main man, Jim Muttcat Grant. And I hope God continues to keep him and bless him. Uh, I know he's going through some health challenges these days, but he's one of the great guys of this game. And the first African-American pitcher to win 20 games in the American League. Um, he's a special, special dude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and Mudcat, at the same time, same thing. Anytime he walked into the room, the room lit up. And so I am dedicating this podcast to my friend Jim Mudcat Grant, who I know will be absolutely delighted that we had an opportunity to talk to three of his guys. Thank you all again for giving up your time and being a part of Black Diamonds. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. That was a pleasure. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, 
nlbm.com and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. SiriusXM Podcasts.